Thanks for joining us again at the Canadian Breakpoint, a Canadian infectious diseases podcast by Canadian infectious diseases physicians. I'm Summer Stewart, back again with Dr. Rapina Pierwal, pediatric infectious diseases physician from Saskatoon. In this episode, we welcome back Dr. George Zanel, medical microbiologist in Winnipeg and research director for CARA, to expand on the CLEAR registry and spotlight CLEAR results for IV phosphomycin. Dr. Pierwal. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, The Canadian Breakpoint. Today, we are joined by Dr. George Zanel, who's a microbiologist and pharmacologist who received his PhD in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the Faculty of Medicine, University of Manitoba, and a Doctor of Clinical Pharmacy at the University of Minnesota. He is presently Professor and Associate Head in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases, Max Rady College of Medicine, and Research Director of the Canadian Antimicrobial Resistance Alliance. Dr. Zanel is the founding and chief editor of the Canadian Antimicrobial Resistance Alliance website, www.can-r.com. Dr. Zanel has published over 1,200 papers, chapters, and abstracts in the area of treatment and prevention of infectious diseases. He has presented over 1,300 lectures as an invited speaker at international, national, and local meetings, speaking on the topics of antimicrobial resistance infections, as well as treatment and prevention of infectious diseases in Canada, United States, Central and Southern America, Western and Eastern Europe, including Russia, Australia, Southern and Northern Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. He has been extensively involved in the treatment guidelines for a variety of infections in Canada, the U.S., and internationally. Dr. Zanel has received or been nominated for more than 100 teaching awards, including the Canadian Association for Medical Education Merit Teaching Award in 2020. Congratulations, Dr. Zanel. Dr. Zanel is a member of the Who's Who in Medical Sciences Education, In 2022, he was elected as a fellow of the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences in recognition of sustained excellence in research and teaching within the health sciences. In 2023, Web of Science identified Dr. Zanel as one of the world's most influential researchers, selected among an elite group, recognized for exceptional research influence, demonstrated by the production of multiple highly cited papers that rank in the top 1% by citations for field and year. Also in 2022, Dr. Zanel received the Dr. Fred Aoki Career Achievement Award in recognition of a career of dedication and excellence in multiple domains of medical microbiology and infectious diseases, including research, education, clinical practice, service, and administration. Hi, Dr. Zanel. Thank you so much for joining us again. We really appreciate you being here today and offering your advice. So we had Uh, You had actually initially come on the podcast this season uh, for episode six. So some of our listeners are probably familiar with what we talked about then, which was the clear registry. We introduced the clear registry. And so for our listeners, just so they recall, that's the Canadian leadership on antimicrobial real life usage registry. And basically um, during that episode, we gave a lot of information, a lot of resources, but today We're actually going to dive in deeper and talk about some of the data on the registry. And so we're going to talk about IV phosphomycin or IVOSO, and we'll uh, go into that in a second here. So Dr. Zanel, if you want to just remind some of our listeners a little bit about the CLEAR registry, has there been any updates and really what does it encompass and what's the ultimate purpose of this registry? 
Well, Dr. Rupina, thanks for inviting me again. You know, we had so much fun last time talking about clear. Yes. I thought, well, let's just uh, <laughs> more clear. As a reminder to all your listeners, clear mm -hmm. is a national Canadian voluntary registry that captures data and then shares information with all clinicians across Canada about how new intravenous antimicrobials are being used across Canada. And the whole purpose of this is to inform Canadians how clinically these new IV antimicrobials are being used in Canada. Why are clinicians using them? How are they using them? Are they working clinically? Are there adverse effects? So in the clinical context, how are we using them across Canada? And it's been very exciting to be part of it. Yeah. And so, like you just said, it's about the IV antibiotics, some of the newer antimicrobials that we have on the market. And so I became familiar with Ivosfo a few years back when, you know, we started thinking about what are we going to use for some of the antimicrobial resistance organisms that we are facing now and the patterns that we're facing here in Canada. So why don't we talk a little bit about, because I know our listeners are excited to probably hear about the data that you've collected in the registry about IFOSFO. So what is some of the shared experiences by providers for this drug across Canada? So just as a quick reminder, the CLEAR registry captures data on intravenous phosphomycin, and that's our focus today. But we also capture data on intravenous ceftobiprol, intravenous of tolzing, tazobactam, and intravenous dalbavans. And, and I've committed to Canadian clinicians that for every new IV antimicrobial that comes onto the market, we will get it into clear and we will share the data. But today in terms of IV phosphomycin, top line summary, and we'll go into this deeper, this drug is used in Canada to treat a variety of infections, both on-label, Health Canada mm -hmm. indication approved, and also off-label. It is used uh, to treat a variety of multi-drug resistant gram-negative infections, but also some gram-positive infections. It is almost always used in combination treatment with other okay. agents, and we'll talk about that. Surprisingly, even though it's frequently used late in the game due to mm -hmm. resistance, due to clinical failure of other agents, we have relatively high microbiological efficacy and clinical efficacy rates, and uh, it's turning out to be a pretty safe drug. We'll talk about mm -hmm. hypokalemia, which is important to know about. All in all, uh, quite a success story for IV phosphomycin in Canada. It's fantastic. And so what are some of the indications when you've collected this data and prescribers are using nationally? So what are colleagues using it for? Like you mentioned, overall multi-drug resistant organisms. Are there certain clinical conditions where IV phosphomycin has done superior? So let me first talk about what are the Health Canada approved indications and then yeah. we'll talk about what clinicians are actually using it for in Canada. So according to Health Canada, intravenous phosphomycin can be used in adults and children, including neonates. And this is because there's so much data internationally that's been available on the drug. But it's indicated in Canada for bacterial meningitis, bone and joint infections, complicated intra-abdominal infections, complicated skin soft tissue, complicated urinary tract infections, 
hospital-acquired pneumonia, including ventilatory-associated pneumonia, infective endocarditis, and also bacteremia that occurs in association with or suspected to be a part of any of those infections. Those are the Health Canada indications. What are Canadian clinicians actually using it for? All of those, believe it or not, except skin soft tissue. We have yet to see anyone use it for skin soft tissue, but clinicians using it for every one of the indications I talked about. And in addition, they've also used it to treat community acquired bacterial pneumonia. So a real wide variety of infections that are being treated with intravenous phosphomycin by Canadian clinicians. Okay. And so in terms of what dose are are they using this at? And then you mentioned that this it's frequently used in combination therapy. And so do you want to discuss maybe a little bit about what real life usage looks like in terms of combination therapy? Like which other antibiotics are we combining it with? Yeah. So number one, why are they using it? 70% of the time clinicians are choosing intravenous phosphomycin because of resistance to other agents. And that's important to know. They've got resistance to other drugs, so they're pulling it out. Sometimes it's due to clinical failure of prior therapy or intolerance of adverse effects, but the vast majority of the time, clinicians are using it due to resistance of other antibiotics. Then when it comes down to dosing, the dosing is actually very interesting because the by far the most common doses that are being used are eight grams every 12 hours, six grams every eight hours, eight grams every eight hours, four grams every eight hours. But we have a complete mishmash of dosing, a whole variety of dosing. And the reason is 100% of the time when intravenous phosphomycin is being used in Canada, it is infectious disease, microbiology, and clinical pharmacy working together to customize that dose based on renal function, severity of illness, where that infection is. So we have a whole range of dosing that is being used. And then when we get to the types of infections we talked about, it's all types of infections, but the interesting part is the pathogens treated. Mm -hmm. The pathogens that are treated, uh, what we found is that they can be multi-drug resistant gram positives or gram negatives. But what we have seen is that the vast majority of the time, intravenous phosphomycin has become the agent of choice to treat carbapenem-resistant enterobacterialis infection. So when clinicians have a CRE infection, we do not have some of these newer agents like imipenem-relabactam, meropenem-vaborbactam, ceftazidimavibactam, cefiterocol yet. So what are we doing? We are using combination treatment for CRE and it's involving intravenous phosphobicin. So carbapenem resistant E. coli, carbapenem resistant Klebsiella, but we've also seen multi-drug resistant pseudomonas. Clinicians Mm -hmm. are using intravenous phospho as part of a combination regimen to treat multi-drug resistant pseudomonal infections. And then you asked me in terms of the combination therapy, it is almost always used as part of combination. The only time we've seen IV phospho used alone has been in complicated urinary tract infection. And that's because of the Zeus study that was published in the US using it alone compared to piptazole for complicated UTI. But 
in the other indications, it's used in combination. What is it used in combination with? A lot of meropenem. You know, it's being yeah. used to treat CRE with meropenem. It's being used to treat CRE with meropenem and tigacycline, meropenem and an aminoglycoside to treat CRE. Um, the intravenous phosphomycin with a carbapenem with inhaled colistin, inhaled aminoglycoside. So it's really being used a lot as a CRE yeah. regimen where clinicians are choosing meropenem and intravenous phosphomycin, maybe in adding in tigacycline, maybe adding a, an aminoglycoside or inhaled colistin. But for the most part, this is a big CRE treatment as part of combination therapy. Okay. And like you mentioned, I mean, we don't have too many drugs on the market that can help us in those situations. So that's really important for us clinicians. And in terms of, I think, when we talked about the indications, we can see that penetration into multiple spaces, you know, so it can be widely used, which is actually a really important property, I think, of IV phosphomycin. In terms of the antimicrobial susceptibility, so do most, like across the country, or you can speak specifically at your center, do most of us have this on formulary, first of all? And then the second thing about antimicrobial susceptibility is do we have breakpoints that we're looking at and, and will this be reported by the labs? So now we're on to a really touchy subject and it's the, our <laughs> listeners are going to get all upset. You know, phosphomycin <laughs> is an interesting drug because yes, uh, we have health candidate approvals for a whole range of indications. It's on many and most uh, hospital formularies. It is being yeah. used um, quite ubiquitously in some centers, less often in other centers. It's being used by infectious diseases, medical microbiology and clinical pharmacy working together. We know that over half of the patients who get intravenous phosphomycin are bacteremic. We know that more than half of the patients who are treated with IV phospho are in the ICU. So it's being used in really, really, really sick people. The vast majority of the time it's being used as directed therapy, meaning we actually have a pathogen. So we have a clinical diagnosis and we have a bacteriological diagnosis and now IV phospho is being used in combination. But then comes the rub, the susceptibility testing. So susceptibility testing with intravenous phosphomycin is a real dog's breakfast. And the reason is auger dilution is the world standard. And we do auger dilution in Winnipeg, you know, in our lab. Clinical labs don't want to do that. And they don't do auger dilution. So okay. what do they do? They've been trying other things, predominantly e-test. And what we have seen is in 70% of the cases, when intravenous mm -hmm. phosphomycin is used, the lab has used some sort of antimicrobial susceptibility testing it could be disc diffusion, but usually it's e-test. And yeah. that's what they've done to try and guide susceptibility testing. The problem is breakpoints. You know, right. if you look at the CLSI breakpoints, we only have urinary breakpoints for E. coli and enterococcus. And this is because there's an oral phosphomycin indicated for acute uncomplicated cystitis. So the right. breakpoints are for UTI pathogens only, E. coli and enterococcus, UCAST, because intravenous phospho is available in Europe. It is not mm -hmm. available 
in the U.S. We have UCAST breakpoints for IV phosphomycin. And I think some Canadian clinicians look at the UCAST breakpoints in order to guide them. But it's a real dog's breakfast. No one wants to really do auger dilution susceptibility testing. Yeah. They're asking us what to do. Many people send us the isolates to do auger because we have a national IV phosphomycin susceptibility testing service. But of the times it's used, clinicians are trying to do some sort of testing. They're either sending the isolate test to do auger dilution or they're doing some sort of in-house testing with disc testing or e-test to try and get an idea of susceptibility testing. But then I go back to how they're using it. They're mm -hmm. using it as combination therapy. Right. They're almost never using it alone. So when you're yeah. treating a CRE and you're using optimized doses and pharmacodynamics of meropenem, you're adding in tigacycline, maybe even an aminoglycoside like amicacin and adding IV phosphomycin. I'm not sure that they know or we know what really that MIC value really right. means because you're adding it for the purposes of synergy to try and optimize yeah. bacterial eradication. So yeah, like you said, so more importantly, I think is what are our microbiological cure rates and our clinical cure rates. I think that's what we can focus on because for us clinicians, obviously for using combination therapy like that, like you mentioned, sometimes it is to overcome some resistance patterns. And so, and if we don't have reliable breakpoints, then, then really we're looking at how well did our patients do? And so in the clear registry, you guys look at outcomes and I believe both at micro and clinical care rates. And so uh, what type of information has been inputted? So I'm very thankful to our clinicians who are participating in clear. I'm giving you data right now in about 76 patients who've been treated with intravenous phosphomycin and the and clinicians who are submitting the data in Canada it's about half infectious disease, medical microbiology, half of clinical pharmacists who are specializing in ID or antimicrobial stewardship. So I'm very thankful to them. And what they're telling us is that in their hands, coast to coast, even though they're using the drug, typically when there's resistance to other agents, patients are bacteremic frequently, frequently in the ICU, they're quite ill. They've showed us that the microbiological eradication or success is mm -hmm. in the range of 78%. So 78% of the time from a microbiological perspective, the organism is either eradicated or what we call presumed eradicated, meaning uh, you're using it for hospital acquired pneumonia and the pneumonia is improved. You're not even, uh, you don't even have any sputum uh, or right. tracheal aspirate fluid to submit. Uh, so it's presumed eradicated. So surprisingly, yeah. quite high eradication rates, despite mm -hmm. the types of patients and the types of infections that are being treated. And then clinically, that's obviously correlating because clinically their patients are improving. And like you mentioned, whether that's very sick, ill patients in the ICU versus even an uncomplicated cystitis type of picture. So definitely a wide range of patients that they're seeing well, it used in. Rupina, I will say that, you know, one of the differences between you and me is I'm interested in killing bugs. You know, I'm a microbiologist <laughs> and a pharmacologist. I like to kill bugs. So I'm delighted that phospho is very rapidly bactericidal and in combination is killing these organisms and the microbiological success rates are high. However, 
you know, clinicians like you're interested in clinical success, right? I don't, I'm not yeah. killing the pathogen. I want to see how my patients are doing. So patients are doing uh, quite well. You know, our clinical successes are in the mid 60s. As you know, patients get better for a whole and worse for a whole variety of reasons, including the heart failure that they have and the MI that they've had and the stroke that they've had. So clinical success is much more complicated. But surprisingly, the clinical success rates have been in the mid 60s, which is quite high again, considering these patients are very sick with bacteremic in the ICU and complicated infections. So the drug is doing well on the eradication side and clinically it's doing quite well on the clinical success side as well. That's fantastic. And so what are some of the side effects? Because I know earlier on in the podcast episode, you mentioned that there might be some side effects that we have to worry about. Maybe we can just touch on that because I'm sure listeners are curious about that as well. So no surprise, this is a very safe drug. And we thought this would occur because we have 25 years of experience from Europe. It's been used extensively in places like Germany and Austria and Spain and France and many European countries. So the vast majority of patients have no side effects. But the one side effect that has come up is hypokalemia. And it's important that clinicians monitor potassium levels and potentially supplement potassium. There's a, a sodium load that comes with the drug because it comes with right. the sodium, there's sodium in the formulation. We mm-hmm. had three patients with hypernatremia. So it's important right. to monitor sodium because there's a sodium load. But the big deal really is hypokalemia, monitoring potassium levels, knowing where they are, and potentially supplementing. But interestingly enough, in no case was the drug discontinued. You know, I always look at serious adverse effects and did the clinician stop using the drug as a result of adverse effects? And the answer is no, but they've documented hypokalemia and in some cases have been supplementing with potassium. And did clinicians mention at like what stage? So is this early on in the course? Is it kind of very Uh, That's a great question. They did not, we did not ask them that. The the balancing act I have with CLEAR is that clinicians have been very clear to me about CLEAR. And they said, look, if this thing takes me any more than three minutes to enter a patient case on my iPhone, my iPad, my desktop, no way. So we have 17 drop down questions, point, click, point, click, point, click. So there's virtually no writing. It's all point, click. And it's right. what is the infection? What's the pathogen? What dose are you using? Are you using it in combination clinically, microbiologically? Is it working side effects? So all I have is, you know, was there a side effect? Yes, no. What was it? Click hypokalemia. So I don't know when and I don't know at which point they intervene. So I, those are the limitations of clear. But the whole goal of it is if a clinician wants to submit data and we're delighted yeah. they do, it's quick. Yeah, exactly. And really, we're looking at like, what's the indication? And there's a lot of case by case, right? So assessments and that like when we're using any other drug, and probably similarly, I don't know if they comment on duration. Have they commented on duration of use? Yes, they have. And, you know, no surprise, close to half of the patients have received greater than 10 days of therapy. 
and the other quarter has been seven to 10 days and the other quarter has been less than seven days. And it's not that surprising that uh, a lot of patients get longer therapy. And the reason is if we look at our top indications, the most common reason it's being used is bacteremia and sepsis, ventilatory associated bacterial pneumonia, hospital associated bacterial pneumonia, endocarditis. And these are due to multi-drug resistant pathogens where uh, clinicians may want to treat a little bit longer when you've got a CRE or a multi-drug resistant pseudomonas. So treatment duration is frequently quite long, despite that it's uh, a pretty safe drug. And so for our prescribers and our listeners out there um, who are pharmacists, who are physicians, medical students and training uh, residents, are there any specific resources that they can look in terms of for this drug? So obviously, I mean, this would be one of the resources uh, listening to the podcast episode, but are there other brochures, posters, publications that uh, they can search and, and get more information? Yes, thank you for asking that. So, Dr. Rupina, my vision with CLEAR has been that a new intravenous antimicrobial comes to Canada, is Health Canada approved, comes onto the shelf so clinicians can use it, and it's maximally on the CLEAR registry for two to three years. After that, two, three years later, uh, we've educated clinicians on how and why they're using these drugs, and now they're just routine drugs in practice. They come off the registry and new ones come onto the registry. So it's a rolling model. So what we've tried to do successfully, and we've done that with IV phospho, is once we hit somewhere around 20 to 30 patients treated, submit an AMI poster, and we present the data at the National AMI CACMID meeting, which is, you know, typically an March or April, so clinicians yeah. can see how it's going. Typically, once we hit around 50 patients, we write up a publication. So once we were about 20, we had an AMI poster in 2022. We had 50 patients. We published a paper in the Journal of Global Antimicrobial Resistance in 2023. Then typically, once we get to higher 60, 70, we put together a second AMI poster. So we had an AMI poster in 2023. And then once we hit 100, and I'm hoping to get to 100 patients soon, we will write the final, you know, it's the final story. How are Canadian physicians using IV phospho? So we've committed to a third AMI poster. We're writing up the abstract right now, and we'll submit that to AMI uh, before Christmas. And then I'm hoping that by the time we put that poster together in March of 2024, then we'll write up the final publication of how clinicians are using intravenous phosphomycin. And my goal is really to hit 100 patients. So I'm encouraging all your listeners, you know, please hit those links. Uh, If you're not a participant of Clear, you just send George Zanel an email, Google me, and you'll see my email address and it's free. I just send you all the links and then you also get all the data. What I do is we crunch the data and I send all of the PowerPoint slides of how these drugs are being used to all Clear participants. We're up to 400. Rupina, I'm delighted to say. That's great. Half are kind of AMI members, you know, pediatric, adult infectious disease specialists, microbiologists. The other half are clinical pharmacists and stewardship infectious diseases, coast to coast. So if you're a clear member, you know, it's free, you get all the data. And if you're willing to be one of the submitters, 
you just hit one of those links. We always send you the links every two, three yeah. months and you enter the data and here we go. So please continue to submit the IV phosphomycin treatment experiences. If you have treated or will treat, hit the link three minutes and you're done. Easy peasy. That sounds fantastic. And with that, I think you've answered my all my questions that I had for IV phosphomycin and we're so grateful and I speak for probably all can, clinicians out there and prescribers that there's available data within Canada about this real life usage, because I think it's really difficult sometimes looking at data from, you know, international data that maybe you cannot uh, correlate with your patient population. But this is really real life, real time data that's being submitted. And we all look forward to um, seeing the posters and the publications and the data submitted at AMI next year. So Rupina, two quick things before uh, we sign off. One is a big thank you to you. You know, I think the goal is that every Canadian, if they're going for a walk or hiking, they need to have Dr. Rupina (laughs) podcast in their ear because these are fantastic podcasts. That's what I do. And secondly, a big thank you to every clinician in Canada who is willing to press that link and spend three minutes entering the data on one of these drugs, phospho, dalbovancin, ceftobiprosoftolzantazo. So a huge thank you to Canadians for making this successful. And a shout out to my colleague uh, in ID doc in Vancouver, Dr. Ted Steiner, who was really yeah. instrumental in getting me to uh, get this going. So thank you, Ted. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And we want to thank you as well, because first of all, A, for supporting the podcast and coming on for a second episode. And I know we have some future episodes um, on other medications, such as ceftobiprol coming up in the next season. So I think all of our listeners will be very excited to hear more about all the data that's been collected and clear. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Rapina and Dr. Zanel for the valuable review. To join the CLEAR registry, email Dr. Zanel at ggzanel, Z-H-A-N-E-L, at pcsinternet.ca. Links are in the episode description. This concludes Season 2 of the Canadian Breakpoint. We'd like to thank all of our listeners, all of our fabulous guests, as well as BioMeruYou and Verity Pharmaceuticals for their support with the podcast. Have a wonderful holiday season and a festive new year, and we'll see you again in 2024 at the Canadian Breakpoint.